get you to close your eyes for a second. Think about hearing the voice of God say, Come and know me, love. Because in my presence there is no need for fear. Come and know me. Wonder what weight these words have in your life today. You can open your eyes. You can can close them if you still want to think about it. In the life of the church in this season, in this decade, in this year, we're sifting through a major season of change. You notice if you look around, the, the pews aren't full. This isn't surprising news to us, and we're not alone in that. This is like the church all across Canada. Attendance of just church is in decline. This is a change. The bigger change that's happening, too, is a societal shift, where the church isn't at the center of society anymore. It's not an important, central thing to most people's li- or many people's lives. And as a result, there's like a lack of Christian knowledge in our culture, where we might have at one time in the church just accepted that probably most of our neighbors at least have read the Bible a little bit or knew who Jesus was or had some sense of the gospel. And even beyond that, beyond this lack of Christian knowledge, there's actually a presence of a number of other religions in our country, which is kind of exciting because there are more people who value spiritual life, some new time for dialogue and conversation about who God is. But that's a lot of change. It's really different from where this church started off. So I wonder on a personal level what your reaction usually is to change. Are you excited by change? Maybe new things intrigue you. Or maybe you're ambivalent to change. Maybe you've experienced so much change in your life that you're a little bit numb to it. It seems easier not to deal with it. I think of my mom, who still uses her typewriter. She's not willing to accept the computer change. But maybe, maybe maybe change stirs up fear and anxiety in you. Stirs up questions of panic, like if we're in financial decline at the church, what are we going to do with the building? Or just in your life, if you're still single, what are you, how are you going to find somebody to marry? Or what if you just lost your job? What are you going to do? Or maybe you're new to Canada. How are you going to make friends? How are you going to cope with your new family member who has cancer? What are you going to do? It's so easy to be stirred up in fear when change hits your life. Fear is a common reaction to change, especially when it affects things that are close to our heart. And for many of us, I can see your faces, for many of us here, the church is close to our heart. And this church is close to our heart. But in the midst of change in life circumstances that cause fear, let's say the Spirit of God is just cooing in our ear. And he's saying, come and know me. Come and know me, love. Just lay your burdens down. There's no room for fear in here. So the gem in the scripture that we're going to read together today, we've already read read some words from it, are these potent words, perfect love drives out all fear. This is the bit that initially brought me to this passage. I've been thinking a lot about fear, 
this year, particularly as reflected on my own life experiences over the last maybe four or five years. I've lived through a lot of change. Thankfully, nothing too dramatic and serious, but it's been a lot. You know, I've switched careers about three times, finished and started a master's degree, um, been working, yeah, three different kinds of work. Um, I met a wonderful man to marry. That's amazing change. I've been, I've moved. I live on, I live on my own now. That's a new change. I've changed roommates. I've traveled, um, and I've experienced a major shift just in my identity and role in this community. So I used to just be a congregational member, and then I was an intern, and then I was an elder, and now they put me in charge of a bunch of stuff, which is kind of crazy. But in that process as well, many of my friends who used to be part of this community have moved on. So now I'm in leadership without these close connections, and it feels kind of vulnerable. There's a lot of change. And sometimes in the midst of that change, I feel it. I feel it on my neck and shoulders. I can tell that I'm not dealing with it well. It's anxiety and fear is in the midst of it. But in the midst of that change, I know the Spirit of God is telling me softly, just come and know me. There's no room for this kind of fear in my love. So again, I came across this word from John earlier this year, this bit that talks about fear. And I was fixated on this one phrase, that perfect love drives out all fear. But when I stopped to look at the broader context of this scripture, I realized that John's focus in this passage is not actually fear at all. His focus is love. So that's interesting. His focus is God. He's urging the church, John is urging the church to know this God of love and respond. That's different than fear. So just before we turn to read this scripture, I'm just going to give some background knowledge. Whenever I read the letters, I really like to understand and reflect on who's writing this letter to get a good sense of the voice. So it's John, the disciple of Jesus, who's writing this letter. And John's pretty old at this point of his life. John was a seasoned mentor at this point of many followers of Jesus and of the first church communities, which is pretty incredible, right at the beginning. He was known as one of the sons of thunder. It's a pretty specific identity to carry. It's a pretty boisterous personality maybe connected to that. And in the, his gospel account, he often he weaves himself into the story he calls himself kind of secretly the disciple that Jesus loved, or the beloved disciple. So John, as he was following Jesus, and then as he recounts the stories of what he experienced of Jesus' life, he identifies, he knows he's loved by Jesus. He's a loved disciple. He's so rooted in that reality. So when John was writing this letter later on in his life, maybe, you know, maybe he was 80, it's a nice age. It's a really nice age to be writing letters to the church. He's addressing um, churches, most a group of churches, most likely around the area of Ephesus, which was a vibrant city of trade and commerce at the time. I mean, not quite like Toronto, but you know, Toronto's a busy city of commerce as well. The churches, there were two things about this church that are helpful to keep in mind, I think. One, that the church was a cultural minority. You know, we are too at this point. And the church was challenged by change. 
So the culture outside the church was drastically different than the culture of God's kingdom. Um, it was a minority in the midst of paganism and idolatry and worship of other kinds of gods and superstitious character, uh, culture. And at the heart of the city of Ephesus was um, a religious industry based on this temple of Artemis, Artemis or Diana, which characterized, as one author writes, by gross immorality and bizarre rites of Eastern pantheism. I'm not sure what that stirs up in your mind, but it sounds bizarre. And it was also this source of wealth and bankruptcy. There was a lot of money exchange connected to this. So the members of John's, the church that John is writing to would have specifically been turning their backs from this culture, turning their backs from any kind of evil that they see happening in their midst like this. And there was division in the church. There are false prophets. There's this group of false prophets that John mentions that have separated themselves in this church as a little holy huddle. I don't know if you've ever experienced division in a church before. It's not so common, is it? (laughs) This group claimed to have a special anointing of the Holy Spirit, a true knowledge of God, and because of this, they, they distanced themselves from many of the church members and put them down. It was the beginning of some early Gnosticism where knowledge, spiritual knowledge, was more important than faith or behavior, which is pretty different than the gospel. I believe that all physical matter was evil, including the body, and the application of that meant that they had a really hard time saying that Jesus was the incarnate Son of God. They were not believing this doctrine because the body was evil. How could God live in a body? But as John witnessed the life of Jesus, he knew something different. This is not his experience of God through the life of Jesus. So in the midst of change and challenging circumstances that were stirring up some fear in this congregation, John urged the church to remember that the Spirit of God was inviting them to know God. There's a strong voice in here saying, Come know me, love. So let's keep that in mind as I'm going to ask you to turn to your Bible. Follow along with me. I believe it's 1201 in your pew Bible if you want to follow along. First John chapter 4, verses 7 to 21. Dear friends, Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them, and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. 
Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. But one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. This is the word of the Lord. This portion of John's letter to the church, he's laying out some foundational theology for them to ground themselves in, in the midst of change. Some foundational theology about God and about their appropriate response to God. Saying that God is a source of love, that God models this love through his son, and that God commands us to love. If we look at verse 17, verse 7, he says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. And then in verse 16, he says, God is love. And then verse 19, he says, We love because he first loved us. God is the source of love. He's not just loving. It's not just a characteristic or personality trait of God. Much more than loving, God is the source. He is love. And this is a foundational reality for those of us who live in Christ Jesus. Now, we're very aware that the world is plagued with suffering and war and disease and disunity and anger and disasters. The news does not hide this from us. We've looked at the news today. It's um, this week, it's been a hard, hard week of news. But above this world where evils are real, there's a greater power that we are invited to know. There's a God who is love. And he is longing for you and I to get to know him. He's not distant from his creation. He cares for each of us. He is so ready to be bothered by us individually and bothered by us collectively. And he wants us to know him so that we might experience life in the fullest. We're going to sing later that this divine love is vast as the ocean. It's not fickle. It's not just friendly or familial. The, God of love, the love of God cannot be earned. It's not conditional. It's there always for us to receive. God always loves us first. He's always loving us first. And it's up to us to turn into that love, to turn and be vulnerable enough to receive and accept that God loves us, despite ourselves and our mistakes and bad habits, and selfishness, and our fears. There's a particularity to this love, though. John says that love comes from God, but not every manifestation of of love is a sign of spiritual life. I think every manifestation of love can show God, but not all is a manifestation of spiritual life. In verse 7, again, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. 
So love is experienced among people and relationships, not just inside the church, obviously, in everyday life. This can be considered a common grace, just as the sun and the rain exist to bless everyone. But John is having an internal conversation here. He's not making comments about the love, being every, love of God being everywhere. He's talking to the church. It's an in-house conversation about discerning the faith of members of the church by their actions, whether they, through their baptism and life and practice, have really come to know God. Do they really know the source of God? Are they really showing love? So next, John tells us how God models his love. In verse 9 and 10. It says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The love we experience in the world can take lots of forms, but the love of God, as John witnessed and reminds us, is particular again. God's demonstration of love sets an amazing precedent. God demonstrated his love by sending his one and only son, Jesus, into the world. And it's not only the living works and teaching of Jesus that model the love of God, but ultimately Jesus' death on a cross, this public display of sacrificing his one son, the unique son of God, that is the important information. So I know a lot of faces around. I know a lot of you know this basic truth of the gospel, but it just, it's good to be reminded of the immensity of the love of God. Be reminded of the imagery and the reality that even though most, some of us might not have children here, but think on the depth of sacrifice that that kind of love would take. That your only offspring, you would choose to sacrifice to ensure that all of humanity had the opportunity to receive eternal life, fullness of life, to receive no judgment for any wrongdoing. That God, our creator and our judge, would send his only child into the hostile environment of the world on a mission to save us from our sins, from ourselves, and reconcile us to him. This is what John witnessed of God in real time and in real history. God didn't choose to sacrifice his son because the world, because the world was ready to love him. Because God is love, he broke into the storyline of history as we know it to show us his love first. The church believes that the love of God necessarily found a means by which just and righteous wrath, the just and righteous wrath of God could be satisfied and turned away so that forgiveness and full reconciliation to God could be achieved. Love, just and right, doesn't make sense if we believe that there is no consequence to sin or bad behavior or poor reaction to fear, you could say. It's the atoning sacrifice of Christ that has made a way for all humanity to receive forgiveness and be reconciled to God. Part of what John says again is if we acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in us 
and us in God. In faith, we choose to be baptized as believers in Christ. And the Holy Spirit meets us there, and we are born again and united to God and made able to live in and through God's love. This is what the church is about. And so we know and rely on God, on the love God has for us. Just like we need that love now, so did the church back then. So God commands us to love. That's the last thing. He commands us to love one another. In verse 11 and 12 now. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. And verse 16 says it again. John's kind of circular in his talk. He repeats things a lot. In 16, he says, whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And then in verse 19 and 21 again, he says, we love because he first loved us. And then at the end of that, and he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. This is the vision. This is the trajectory of the church to live in God by loving one another. This is the vision of the church. It's kind of an irrational thing for us in our rational culture to believe that this metaphysical presence, love of God, is just like living in us, just by nature of us having faith in Christ. God's love is like bonding us together right now. It's like some nice bonds as we love each other. He says, if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. There's this triangular kind of picture here, a dependent picture, a little bit of an equation, that is when we love one another, God, who is a source of love, that's when he shines through. It's when we love one another, that's when the source of love, God, shines through, shines his love through in us. It's not just like, just love isn't just the right thing to do, though, either. It does work. This love does work when, when you take a self-righteous, or this doesn't work, this love doesn't work, sorry, when you take a self-righteous stance about it. If you just say, like, I'm going to love because that's the right thing to do, that's actually not the kind of love we're talking about here. This kind of love is a response of gratitude when we recognize the depth of God's love for us. It's our response when the grace-filled nature of God's love hits us. We're truly ready to receive God's love, if we are, we will be compelled naturally or supernaturally to extend God's love to others. I don't know, do you think the church is full of this kind of love today? Or do you think the church is known for this kind of love today? I think it is in pockets. But there's some pretty bad media out there about the church through our history. I don't really like the church to be known for this kind of love. Not for our sake, but for the sake of God. So I think if any positive change is going to happen, either in this church, or maybe in the church that John was writing to, the church in the city, or the country, or the world, it's going to start with getting to know God, his son, and this kind of love. It's 
going to start by listening to the Spirit's call to come and know me. Okay, so we've got God is a source of love, and God models this love through the Son, and God commands us to love. These are good principles of the church. I believe you all believe, many of you believe these as you've connected yourselves to this place. So we've known these things about God. The church has known these things for centuries, but how is it that we still encounter fear? Why do I still struggle with anxiety as I'm going through change? Why do I still sometimes hear fearful rumors stir up when staff are making decisions and we don't always communicate well and sometimes we do and then there's feedback and sometimes it's based in fear? Verse 18, again it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. It seems like we have some work of perfection to do. But as we put our faith in Jesus, we're still not completely immune to fear. We have all the resources we need to overcome it. But fear is still a part of our sinful nature. It's still a part of our basic human response in life. It's part of the broken reality of the world and our fallen nature. And definitely, when we encounter any kind of change, I know that there will be some kind of sense of fear stirred up. So I wonder together, or just in your lives if you're visiting today, if we can be wise in the ways of the Spirit of God. We can just step forward and say, we're going to manage change well. Because of God's love, we're going to manage change well. In our church and in any point of our life. So I'm going to offer you some thoughts on managing change that kind of connect with this. When you're managing change, any kind of change, any kind of difference in our life, we want to know and be rooted in what our vision and purpose is. So we know from this letter that John has affirmed the church with, we know in the case of the church what binds us together, and that is the source of love. It is the voice of God calling us to know him to see and receive God's love through the Son on the cross and make God's love complete by loving others. This is the truth that's going to ground us in any change. So as we manage change, then we want to set our expectations as best as possible. We want to think through some possibilities. What could possibly happen? You know, it's a fair expectation. I'm not going to go through lots of expectations, but in the face of change, we're just going to experience fear. I've said that a few times. Just expect that you're going to be fearful of something that happens. It's going to freak you out because you don't know what's going to happen. Marriage. Getting married soon. It's going to freak me out because I don't know what's going to happen, but I can expect that. It's going to be good. It's going to be a good thing to navigate. So the last thing we want to think about when we're managing change is just to be prepared. So our number one preparation is responding to God's call again, getting to know him, hearing his voice. But a second, kind of on a secondary level, I think it's always helpful to know our opposition. So if we know that fear is going to come about, we just get to know our fears. We're going to spend some time reflecting on our fears so that we can let love infuse and diffuse those fears as they come about. 
just be reminded, too, that fear, although the opposite of love, isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's actually a human, a part of our human nature, you know, opposite of love, but it also keeps us aware of ourselves and situations. You know, if you're fearful of death, it's probably maybe because you're going to die, and that's okay. Um, maybe you're standing on the edge of a cliff. Yeah, there's a serious fear that's protecting you. That's okay. But the problem, the problem is of fear is not that we fear, but it's really what we do with that fear. What are we going to do with that? So thinking about some fear that you might have encountered in your life. Maybe at some point you felt overwhelmed. I have a lot of work. A lot of things happening in my life usually. I love it, but sometimes it's overwhelming. This is a kind of fear about losing, a sense of losing autonomy, losing my voice or my sense of self in the midst of too many things. You know, I could lose hope. I could lose self-confidence. Maybe I could be jealous of those who seem to have it simpler. What are we going to do with that fear? Maybe you have like a fear of rejection or just not being valued. Maybe you've experienced that kind of fear. You can imagine that happening in the church that John's talking to. This smaller group who believe in the incarnation of Jesus being kind of snubbed. They become angry. Maybe they distance themselves from somebody to protect themselves. Maybe they just hate somebody. Or maybe because you fear being judged, you just be quiet and hide. It's not love. Maybe you feared some kind of sense of humiliation or shame or loss of integrity. Would you get defensive? Maybe you'd tell a little lie to kind of protect yourself. That happens. But maybe, too, because you risk shame or humiliation, you wouldn't even take a risk. We want to be a church that takes risks, and we might mess up along the way. We want to do things thoughtfully and wisely, but we don't want to hold back because of fear. I think I found the verses in 1 Corinthians 13 about love, actually a helpful checkpoint as I experience things in life that are change and stir up fear. It's a good checkpoint of how I'm responding to change or difference because it tells us things that love is not. So it says, love is not jealous or boastful or proud or selfish or angry. It doesn't hold grudges. And it's not hopeless. So as you go about your life, you know, I think I can, all the faces I know have gone through some change, little or big, in the last little while as I look out. If you find yourself in a place of fear, just pause, just stop. Think about that fear, hold it out, and look at it. And as you're looking at that fear, just hear the voice. Be reminded that God is calling you to come to know him, to come and know his love. God, as God is love, the quality of this love is invitational. It's 
paired with this word, come, come and know me. Love is invitational. Love is invitational every time. An invitation expresses an openness and curiosity. So we can look at our fear, we can ask questions about it, like why? Why do I have this fear? Why am I anxious? What's that about for me? And ask the God who knows you deeply to reveal to you what's the root of your fear. God knows you deeply. He can tell you if you just take some time to listen. And ask yourself, let the Spirit stir some creativity in you. What are you going to do to overcome this fear? You're not going to be angry. It's not going to help. That's not love. You're going to have a conversation. Have a brave, courageous conversation with somebody, maybe. As when you're living in God, there is no room for fear. If we look to the life of Christ to shine light on what it looks like to overcome some really common fears that we might experience in life, to overcome them with love, we see there's no room for fear in Jesus' life, and this is who we long to follow and live like. If you think of when Jesus met that Samaritan woman at the well, it was super taboo to hang out with women who were Samaritan as a Jewish rabbi. That was not a good thing. But Jesus sets aside those, the fears of those cultural taboos and says, no, I'm going to engage in this conversation because this woman is important and I've got some good things of God to tell her. Jesus also puts aside the cultural taboos of interacting with tax collectors and fishermen and prostitutes. He says, come and follow me. That's crazy. When was the last time you walked down the street, saw a prostitute, and said, hey, let's go for coffee? I don't think I've ever done that. I have, I have a lot of interesting friends. But <laughs> And when the crowds pressed in in Jesus when he was teaching, sometimes they were even threatening his life, he didn't hide. Sometimes he just knew his time was up, and he just walked through the crowd. He just walked away. He, he said what he needed to do. He didn't, he didn't always push back. Sometimes he pressed into deeper conversations with the Pharisees and, and showed them some tricky stories to let them imagine more about what the kingdom of God was like. And then later on in his life, when his friends rejected and abandoned him, he was still rooted in the love of God and God's mission for his life. He didn't let that stir him. He stayed rooted in the Father's love into the mission he was set on. And at his, close to his crucifixion, when he was faced with Pontius Pilate's questions, and the crowds were jeering and mocking him, and then carrying his cross to a torturous death, which was more terrifying than anything I could imagine I will ever experience in my life, Jesus knew his purpose, and he stood firm, and he knew that his goal was to save the world, and he stood, and he did that. He just faced it, determined to take up God's calling, God's mission on his life, to reconcile the world to himself. He was fearless. This is the God who loves us despite ourselves and our sins and our fears. And this is the God who says, come and know me. Don't fear. There's no room for fear in this. Says vast, his love is vast and strong and is able to cast out all fear. So church, you today, I know you're ready for change. We're in the middle of it. And keep walking through it. I know you're ready because you know this God, this God of love. Because you hear his voice calling you to keep getting to know him deeply. Because he loves you.
because she's shown us this love through the Son. And what can we do in response but to love others and complete his love? That's a really beautiful thing. It's a life-changing thing. It's a world-changing thing. This is our purpose here, church, just in case you forgot. And to complete God's love by loving one another. I just want to end um, with a small story. Sometimes I think the concerns of the West are little. I think they're significant, but um, I think it's important to blow open our context, remember what else is happening in the world. So we're going through some change here in Knox and in Canada. You know, there are wars being waged in the world, wars that inflict constant change and constant fear far greater than I think most of us will actually ever know, thankfully. So I'm going to share this little story of how perfect love can drive out fear. It's from a book by Tyler Wiggs Stevenson. It's called The World is Not Ours to Save. It's a great little, little read. So this story is of Daoud. And Daoud is a farmer. He is a family man. He runs a beautiful farm somewhere in that awful area of Palestine and Israel that is constantly in conflict. His family has owned this land for a long time. Daoud, in a small way, is a Palestinian. That's his small letter identity. And in a big, bigger identity, he's a Christian. And so his farmland is constantly threatened. Over the years, he's had, no, he's had his electricity and water, all kind of resources cut off from this property, but he has found a way creatively to make this farm a place of peace. And so, oh dear, don't tell me I lost my page. That's so awful. Oh no, it's a good one. It's so good, guys. Hold on. Took my build up. That was such a good build up. Such a, man. Sorry, guys. Fear God. Take this time to reflect on what I've said. Okay, Tent of Nations. The farm is called Tent of Nations. We're coming back to it. Yeah, here we go. Okay. Stuart and his family have been Christians for many years. In this, you know, we've heard some of the conflict there happening, and I know a few members of our church have spent some time among the Christians in this area, and it's hard. So Dawood is quick to point out, he's fed up with hearing theories about peace and how the Israeli-Palestinian conflict should be resolved. So he's resolved to live out in the present, the future resolution and reconciliation that he hopes for. He says, I believe in small steps. In this conflict, there's an expectation of how you will react. But when you act differently, confuses people and changes the situation. And so when the soldiers stopped Dawood's car one day in the middle of the night and forced him over his protests to pull his children from their sleep, he didn't return anger for the insult. Instead, he spoke to his children in English, which the soldiers understood very well, saying, do not be afraid. 
These soldiers are people. They are young and frightened like you. They are human beings too. So don't be scared. And a change came over the soldiers, and they completed their search quickly. And when they finished, the squad commander approached Daoud humbly and spoke to him as a fellow man rather than a suspected terrorist. And he said, I'm sorry we did that. Please apologize to your children on my behalf. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you because we need your help. And we are grateful that you have shown us the deepest love we could imagine and enabled us to have a good conversation with you, God, all the time. We thank you, Jesus, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that you are love and you invite us into that love. Pray for any fear that is in our lives in this room right now. And pray that you would overcome it. That you, through your love working in us, would open our hearts to release any fears to you. Let your spirit shine through in love and creativity and interesting new things that are infused with the love of God. Not for the sake of your church, God, but for your sake, for your name's sake in this world that you could go about your good and redeeming work in this time before you come again. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.